So I'd like to invite you to get a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there should be one in a chair that you can grab within reach and open it up to the Gospel of Luke. So we're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book, chapter 12. Luke 12. And we're going to start reading with verse 13, Luke 12, 13. Continuing to think about the kingdom of God and what that looks like and then how do we live into that as a church and we're discovering that a lot of that means there's some slowdown that needs to happen in terms of our, uh, the way we look at life and the way we look at God and the way we look at each other. So you can continue to listen for that in this passage. Luke 12, starting with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I once had a chance to speak to a group of preschool kids about Jesus, and so I wanted to tell them this really compelling story about Jesus who came and was born as a baby. And when he arrived, the angels from heaven came and announced his arrival to the shepherds, and the shepherds came and were uh, amazed when they saw the baby Jesus and that this baby grew up to be a little boy and then he grew up to be a man and then he went off and he performed miraculous deeds. He did great things and he proclaimed God's love and people were fascinated by him until one day a group of angry men were frustrated with Jesus and so they condemned him to death and they nailed him to a cross and he died and they placed him in a tomb. But three days later, he rose again from the dead. And that's the story of Jesus. And the whole time I was telling the story, these little preschool kids had their face fixed on me. They were really focused in on it. And this one little girl, as soon as I finished, raised her hand. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, what? And she goes, your face is fuzzy. (laughs) The story that we just read in Luke chapter 12 is a fuzzy face kind of story. Because if you look at how this story flows in Luke's book, we understand that Jesus has just been preaching to a crowd of people about the kingdom of God. And he has been trying to tell them, this is what God's kingdom is like. And God comes with great power to bring his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that God is inviting all of us to join him in this 
bringing of the kingdom. And he's proclaiming to these people about how important it is to stay focused on this and to, to remember that we are part of that and don't lose sight of it. In fact, he, gives, uh, he sprinkles into this message a few woes to those who don't pay attention. Woe to you who do not grasp the kingdom, who do not pay attention to this. He even says to them, don't fear those who can only kill your body, but fear those who can kill your body and destroy your soul in hell. This is the message that Jesus is giving, and I imagine that the crowd is fixated on him as he's giving these words. And then some guy in the crowd goes, uh, Jesus, can you talk to my brother? He, he's not sharing with me. He's completely missed what, what Jesus has just been talking to him about. And Jesus, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, but I think Jesus says, are you kidding me to this guy? He says, let me tell you a story about a fool. You know who he's talking about, right? Now, Jesus actually has my attention when I'm reading through this passage because I have an aversion to being a fool. I don't know if any of you have this same aversion, but I do not like to look foolish. I do not like people to think that I'm foolish. And I certainly don't want God to call me foolish. So now Jesus has my attention, and I'm um, wondering about this first question that comes to me is, how can I not be a fool? Now, when you read through this passage, I think it might be easy for us to argue that this rich man in the story is actually very wise and responsible by our standards because he has done something we might admire. He's created a thriving business. He's done very well. He's got an abundance of produce. He doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't want it to go to waste, so he doesn't have room to put it in any barn, so hey, why don't I bang bigger barns, and then I can have room to store my stuff. This is kind of the American way, right? We admire self-sufficiency. We admire those who are responsible with the stuff that they've been given. We admire those who plan carefully, and we admire those who save for the future. It seems like this guy has it figured out, right? In fact, this might be the kind of guy we would go for financial advice, you know, hey, can you give me some coaching about how I might prepare for my future? And God says to this guy, you fool. What's foolish about this? Now, to understand this, we might want to dig a little deeper into the guy's motivation, maybe what's behind this behavior. And we might want to dig a little deeper into Scripture. What does the Bible say about what a fool is? So I'm going to start with the Bible part first because I think that's clearer. Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is very typical of the Proverbs we read where fools are those who seem to not get it. They don't seem to understand. They don't seem to get the big picture as compared to those who are wise, who understand God is at work, and they're looking for God's hand to be at work, and they're seeking that out. A little bit later in Proverbs, we read this verse, The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of common sense. Here I get a picture of those who are wise because they're able to like offer something up that actually is good for everybody. They nourish or encourage or support or help those who are around them, while the fool, thinking only of himself, dies because he can't even have common sense. Fools, it seems to me clearly in Scripture, are those who 
think that God does not have any part in their life. They look at their life and they don't see where God would fit in at all. They're not interested or not concerned about that. Fools do not turn to God for proper knowledge. They don't look to God for wisdom. They don't look to God for guidance. They don't look to God to hear God's directions. Fools think that they are masters of their own destiny. Fools think that they control their future in their own hands. Fools do not make decisions based on other people in their community. They think only of themselves. Their vision never goes beyond their own selfish desires. Fools continue to accumulate things even though they have more than enough. And fools continue to accumulate things even though they have uh, without, no regard for their neighbor and what their neighbor might have or need. Fools sue their brother for the family inheritance. Fools do not think of others. Fools think about themselves. When you read through this passage, it's very clearly, if you look at all the personal pronouns in there, me, my, I, for myself, this is for my gain, this is this man's worldview, this is what he's seeing. Now, even though this man has interrupted Jesus in his description about the kingdom and what the kingdom looks like, Jesus brings it back almost immediately by giving us a perspective on God's kingdom. He says this, Wise men acknowledge God and recognize that they live their life in the middle of God's kingdom. You cannot live apart from God's kingdom. The fool thinks he can. The foolish man living outside the kingdom tries to secure his future with the accumulation of stuff, just more and more possessions. He builds his bigger barns. He sets himself up for life. And then God comes that night and says, Time's up. Your life is over. Future, not so secure. Future, outside his control. So this raises a second question for me. Well, how can I, how can I secure my future? I am actually quite interested in that. I'd like to have a secure future. This rich man is a fool, I think, not because he's wealthy and not because he's saved up. He's a fool because he does not understand true security. This is something that he hasn't grasped. The rich fool's land has produced abundantly. He's got more than enough. And yet he has no sense of gratitude to God. He has no sense of recognizing God's part in allowing the land to produce. He also has no sense in all those who helped in this process, those who worked to support him, those who planted the crop, those who harvested the crop, those who are going to load this crop into his barns. He has no sense of that. He has no sense of sharing his abundance with others and no thought of giving back to God an offering based on the abundance that he has received. This man is only thinking of himself. This is why he's a fool, and this is why he has missed out on what brings true security. Now again, when I'm reading through this with my eyes looking around our kind of current cultural understanding of things, we might admire this guy. You know, he's done the thing that we lift up in this culture. You know, look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Provide for yourself. Be responsible. And yet the rich fool misses the fact that Life is more than the accumulation of these possessions. He misses the fact 
that he is part of a larger community. He misses the fact that something more might be required of him than simply stashing it all in the barns. He misses the fact that his life is not his own to secure. He misses the fact that his life belongs to God. He misses the fact that God is in control. Do whatever you want with whatever possessions you have and store them in as big a barns as you want. Tonight, it could all change. One of the core themes that we visited in this slow church series is this perspective that God is in control. That God is in control of all things, past, present, and future. And we've looked at this God, this God of patience, God of creation, God of abundance, God of grace, God of power, God of justice, God of goodness. This God holds us in his hands. He holds this whole world in his hands. God of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who sets right all that is wrong in this world, who fixes all that is broken. This God holds us in his hands. The fool did not see that. We've talked about slow church and kind of the subtitle or tagline we've put underneath that is developing community in the patient way of Jesus. So that's why we've been looking at these stories in Luke and to see how Jesus talked about the kingdom and how Jesus actually lived the kingdom out. When Jesus faced trials and troubles, when Jesus was in difficult times, when Jesus was in the darkest time, when Jesus was looking toward the cross and recognizing that this was about to come to him, what did Jesus do? He prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus was facing his own death, when this was, you know, if you were ever going to look at a story and go, it looks like this thing is going to coming off the rails. All these plans for bringing God's kingdom, all the hopes that were placed in Jesus, all the beliefs that this was going to be something different, it looks like it's coming undone. He's been condemned to death. He's being marched up a hill. He's being nailed to a cross. He's facing his own death. It looks like the future is totally insecure. And what does Jesus say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. We are in God's hands. God holds our lives. God holds our future. If we want security, our security comes from being rich in the things of God, not in the things of this world. So where do we look for security in times, good times and bad? Where do we look for security in times of crisis or uncertainty? Or where do we look for security in times of joy and abundance? Where do we look? At the wedding feast of Cana, when Jesus is celebrating with his friends and family and turning water into wine, Jesus recognizes he's in God's hands. 
When Jesus is sitting in front of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, weeping in grief, he recognizes his life is in God's hands. No matter what comes, his security comes from knowing that he is in God's hands. Sometimes I wrestle with how to exactly bring this forward and and teach on this, and then I see something that touches me deeply, and I think it might be helpful for you to see. So I'm going to show you a little video clip now. And this is, um, it's a somewhat disturbing clip. It's a video about uh, an extreme situation that has been facing the, the Christian church in Egypt as they've been facing some persecution and some martyrdom. And in the midst of this intense persecution, they... Um, have a remarkable response. And I'm showing this for two reasons. The first is this. I want to make a note that today happens to be the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And I think we have a great opportunity as the church in America to pray for the church in places in the world where there is intense persecution. So I wanted to make a note of that. And the second reason I'm showing this is because of the deep trust that these individuals place in God in the midst of their persecution. So I'd like you to think about that as you're watching this little video clip. Prisoners are beheaded brutally. Coptic Christians and the Egyptians, who are now uh, their enemies. A terror group released a video showing the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians. The slickly produced video shows masked knifemen herding their victims to a beach, after which the lead militant makes it clear that the Egyptians, who were mostly migrant workers in Libya, are being killed as a message to the people of the cross. young men were simple workers, maybe some of them illiterate, just trying to eke out a living in Libya. They were not very well educated. They weren't people whom the world would ever have heard about. And when the ISIS people killed them, assassinated them so brutally, and um, thought that by putting it on video, they would horrify and terrify the world, actually did exactly the opposite. Because these men's stability, their courage, knowing they were going to be killed and yet not screaming and yelling and uh, accepting that they were being killed because they were Christians. We later heard that uh, ISIS, in trying to justify it later, when they realized they made a mistake and they shouldn't have, they said, well, we gave them a chance to repent, but they didn't. So we knew that they had been given the option to deny Jesus. And instead of doing so, they were willing to die for their faith. When this happened and they, when they filmed it, they did not edit out the fact that these were praying, these men were praying all the time. And then eventually, as they were being killed, they said, Jesus, Jesus, save us, Jesus. So they were looking to Jesus. He's the one that preserves the faith. He's the one that gives the faith. He's the one that strengthens the faith. He's the one that was tried in every way so that he can aid those who are tried. And we are being tried. And he's aiding us in ways that those who are not tried will never imagine or comprehend. 
because he gives sufficient grace in times of weakness and we are in our weakest time and when we ask people outside of our region to pray for us we're not praying that your strength will be our strength we're praying that you'd help us see his strength that's already available to us we're praying that our eyes would be open to the sufficient grace that's already available for us we're not looking for your power or your strength we're looking for his power and his strength that's already available but in our weakness we can't see it all the time so we ask you to pray that our eyes would be opened to what he's doing to what he's what he's working on he's working on us he's preserving his church he will continue to preserve the church till the day he comes back and his promise to us as egyptians the promise that we cling on to every time we face any any form of trial or persecution or hardship is that blessed be egypt my people we are his people he called us my people out of egypt he called his son we cling to that promise of blessing and one of our young uh, christian um, young girls works here was very encouraged and she said i'm extremely encouraged today i said why are you encouraged all of us are very discouraged she said because i'm a coptic christian i've been raised in the concept of martyrs but it was something of so long ago i didn't believe it fit in the 21st century when i saw these young men and their courage my faith was revived and i felt again that we are able to stand and hold our ground and nothing can separate us from the love of christ One comment the second uh, speaker shared, those, those who are not facing trials have difficulty understanding we who are facing trials. And I'll admit, I have difficulty facing or understanding the kind of courage that is required to face that kind of uh, situation. And this video is actually quite a bit longer and several other people speak. And the thing that amazes me in this is that the overall tone throughout this is a deep sense of security. Their security does not come from their possessions. It does not come from their life. Their security comes from the fact that they are in the hands of God and God is holding them. And this results in this kind of deep gratitude that just overflows so that they can say, you know what, we understand more clearly now than ever that God loves us and we are so grateful for God's love. And that seems to overflow into their lives and the way that they live. Which brings me to the third question I had when I read this passage. And that question was, how can I grow more gratitude? How can I be more grateful? This fool did not seem to be grateful for the things that he had. He was only thinking about trying to secure a future that was outside of his control to secure, and he lacked gratitude. How couldn't we become more grateful? Now, my normal kind of approach for doing this would be to try to give you some tips or some pointers. And I've got a couple that are listed in your cell sheet. If you've got an opportunity to study that later, look it over with your family, maybe study it with your small group later. Um, One of them is a gratitude framework. And I actually, somebody shared this with me at lunch this week at Taco John's. Somebody was saying, this is a perspective that helps him be grateful. Instead of saying, do I have to? I say, I get to. Do I have to go walk my dog again tonight? I get to go walk my dog tonight because I have legs to walk. I got a dog who loves me. I live in a safe neighborhood. I'm not worried about walking in. I could go on and on about the things that I have as a blessing because I get to do that. 
Do I have to go to work today or do I get to go to work today? Do I have to face this particular trial? Do I get to face this particular trial? You can think about that gratitude framework. The next one is an appreciative inquiry, which is a way of living that says, I'm going to always ask the question, what gives me life? What is life giving for me? And I start by looking in my past. I look at my history and I say, what things in my past have given me life that have helped me to be be grateful? And I take uh, stock of those. And then I ask, well, what do I have right now that gives me life? And then the third question is, so then what moving forward in my life is going to give me life? And that tends to grow a grateful heart, appreciative inquiry. And the third one is uh, someone suggested making an asset map. An asset map is when we actually look at our lives and we start to take stock in, what do we have? See the negative, ungrateful person, the person who's only worried about building bigger barns to store up his possessions, is usually asking the question, what do I lack? What don't I have? We looked at that a little bit last week. This question asks, what are my assets? And you start to take stock of what are my assets spiritually? What are my assets in relationships? What are my assets physically? What are my assets economically? What are my assets materially? There's a lot of different categories you can look at. But it asks the question, what do I have? And you start to see that we are blessed people. We are among the wealthiest people in the world in every one of these categories. And so that can be another way to, uh, to grow some gratitude. So there might be some approaches there that you would be comfortable using. There's another approach that I use that helps me to remain grateful. And I'll admit that this is a challenge. Even we who are among the wealthiest in the whole world, our gratitude is often contingent on circumstances, isn't it? Like if things are going well, we go, yeah, I'm so grateful today. And if something goes wrong, right? Um, One thing that helps me to balance that out is remembering the truth. And one central truth that helps me to remain grateful is this truth. God gives because it is the fundamental nature of God to give. God loves because it's the fundamental nature of God to love. God is good because it is the fundamental nature of God to be good. And when I remember these core truths, you know what it does for me? It just makes me grateful. Sometimes I even wonder if it could make me grateful in the midst of a terrible difficulty. And I know that I've experienced that sometimes. So I remember stories like this because it reminds me of God's basic giving nature and God's basic loving nature and God's basic nature as a good God. I remember stories like this that come from John 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn this world, but to save this world. And when I hear stories like that, I think, God is a good God. God is a God of love. God is a God who gives. And it makes me grateful. The challenge is for us not to get distracted from these stories by things like our brother's inheritance or a fuzzy face. Let's pray. God, we come before you today and we thank you that...
You are a good God who loves us. God, I want to take this opportunity right now to pray for your church around the world that is being persecuted, for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing martyrdom because they believe in you. I pray, God, that they would feel your love today, that they would know your goodness. God, I pray for us gathered in this place that you would help us to recognize that our security comes from being held in your hands and that our gratitude comes from the fact that you are a good God, a giving God, a loving God. And so we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.